Good morning. It's so great to see all of you here this morning. Uh, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth, chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 13, and we'll read through to verse 22. Again, the book of Ruth, chapter 4, starting in verse 13, and we'll read through to verse 22. In September of 1709, a man by the name of Samuel Johnson was born to Michael and Sarah Johnson in Litchfield, England. The son of a poor bookseller, Samuel would eventually go on to study at Pembroke College, a college of Oxford University, though he would eventually be forced to leave before finishing his degree due to financial constraints. Uh, despite this, however, and despite having Tourette's syndrome, a, a condition that would not even be defined uh, nor diagnosed until well after his death, uh, despite all of this, Samuel would go on to be one of the most prolific writers literary critics, and lexicographers in English history, earning him the beloved title of Dr. Johnson. Now, Samuel Johnson was a devout Christian, and a story is told of how he once presented a short story before a prestigious group of London's freethinkers and philosophers, most, if not all of whom, were unbelieving atheists and agnostics. And upon finishing his presentation, the members of this prestigious club were all unanimous and very vocal in their praise of this literary work. And once their praise had abated, Samuel Johnson informed them that their praise and adoration was actually for a story that is found in a book they all rejected, the Holy Bible. You see, unbeknownst to them, Dr. Johnson had not presented one of his own works, but instead he presented a very ancient story, a story that we know as the book of Ruth. So Dr. Johnson presented the book of Ruth as though it were his own writing in order to demonstrate the glory and majesty of the scripture to the unbelieving world. And in this shrewd move, he, caught, he caused those unbelievers who would be considered wise according to the world's standards, he caused them to praise and admonish the beauty and excellency of God's word. Written in highly artistic prose narrative, the book of Ruth is one of the most beautiful stories in all of scripture, and I dare say in all of literature throughout history. And the story of Dr. Johnson demonstrates that not only believers think so, but even the unbeliever marvels at the literary genius of this book. It is unexcelled in its beauty, brevity, and use of dramatic effect. The book of Ruth does not only meet the standard of literary excellence, but instead it is the standard of literary excellence. While we recognize Ruth as an extraordinary literary achievement, we must also recognize it as so much more than that. As Christians, we affirm the historical nature of this book and recognize it as an accurate um, account of historical events. And even more so, we recognize that, as Paul pointed out, the book of Ruth is God-breathed scripture that is profitable for our instruction and sufficient for the revelation of God. So as we approach this book this morning, let us do so with wonder at the magnificence of this story. And let us do so with purpose as we look to these words to hear the voice of our good shepherd. And so with that, let us turn to our text in Ruth chapter four, starting in verse 13. Here is the word of the Lord. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be, the Lord, uh, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and she became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a, a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. 
They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not only given us your word to nourish us, to strengthen us, to instruct us and sanctify us, but you have also given us beautiful stories to more deeply illustrate your beauty and goodness. I pray that we would see your sovereign providence in this book, and I pray that our study this morning would edify us and bring glory to your name. We ask and pray all of these things in the precious and holy name of your Son. Amen. To start, I would like to take a, uh, a walk through the entirety of this story, highlighting some things along the way. And then afterwards, we'll look at some specific things that I think are particularly relevant for our church. So as the book opens, the scene is set for us right away in verse one. We read that in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. We are given the time, right, uh, when the judges ruled. Uh, we are not told the exact date, but we are given sort of a general time frame that tells us a lot about our story. What do we know from the book of Judges? Well, we know it was a tumultuous time marked by sin, rebellion, judgment, and salvation in somewhat of an endless loop. We know that there were periods of peace and rest and periods of oppression and strife. We know that everyone did what was right in his own eyes rather than what was right according to the law word of God. But we are not only given the time frame, we are also given the particular circumstance that surrounds our story. There was a famine in the land. The exact cause of this famine is, is unknown, uh, though we do know that the health and productivity of the land was directly tied to Israel's obedience or lack thereof. Uh, in the same way that Adam's sin cursed all of the ground, we see that the ground would suffer because of the sin of Israel. We are then introduced to a man from Bethlehem and his family. And as a quick note, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. And as we saw during this time, there was a famine in the land. So there was no bread in the house of bread. A remarkable literary device that sets a thrilling backdrop for our story. So, as I mentioned, there's a famine in the house of bread, and we are introduced to a man and his family. Elimelech, his wife Naomi, their two sons, Malon and Kilion. We are told that Elimelech and his family journeyed to the land of Moab, where his sons took Moabite wives, namely Orpah and Ruth. And we are not told exactly why they journeyed to Moab, though it is reasonable to assume that it was due to the harsh economic conditions created by this famine. Now, who were the Moabites? Well, the Moabites were the offspring of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters, which we learned about in Genesis 19. So the Moabites were outside of God's covenant people. And having been conceived through this dishonorable means, there is a sense in which they are an unclean people. Furthermore, Israel's relationship with Moab was one that was back and forth between peace and hostility. Uh, from the time of Israel's wilderness wanderings, uh, all the way up until the time that Moab was conquered by Babylon in the 6th century BC, uh, Israel and Moab were constantly back and forth, constantly between uh, friend and foe. In fact, just by way of an example, in Judges chapter 3, we do see Moab oppressing Israel as God raised up Eglon, king of Moab, to judge Israel for her sin. 
God then raises up the judge, Ehud, to save Israel from the Moabites after 18 years of oppression. Then in somewhat of a contrast, as we begin the book of Ruth, we see that the relationship between these two nations is somewhat peaceable as Elimelech and his family are able to easily relocate to Moab. And this brings up a very interesting point. As we've already mentioned, one of the common refrains throughout the book of Judges, uh, the time at which our story is set, is that in those days, right, the, the days of the Judges, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I think that this is true of Elimelech. We see that rather than trust in the Lord, Elimelech took his family to Moab because it seemed right in his eyes. Uh, ironically, uh, uh, the name Elimelech means my God is king. Yet Elimelech took his family away from the land where his king uniquely and sovereignly ruled. Right, Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, he went to dwell amongst a people who did not recognize his God as king. A people who were outside of God's covenant and whose bloodline was the result of a relationship that violated the law of God. Elimelech did these things because it seemed right in his eyes, because he believed that he would have been better off to dwell amongst those who were outside of God's covenant people and who had been their enemies than he would have been to remain in the promised land with God's people. Very quickly, however, we are told that Elimelech died along with his two sons. And our story begins to focus on Naomi as one of the primary characters. Uh, following this tragedy, Naomi takes, uh, starts to begin, uh, make her way back to the land of Judah. And while on the way, she tells her daughters-in-law uh, that they should go back uh, to live in their mother's house. You see, Naomi thought that if they could go back to their home country, uh, they might actually have a better chance of having a decent future. Uh, perhaps they could remarry and, and even have children. So she strongly and continually exhorted her daughters to leave her and to return to their homeland. And while Orpah is eventually convinced to turn back, Ruth makes a solemn vow to Naomi. She tells her, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May Yahweh do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Now, what a remarkable commitment. Ruth not only commits herself to Naomi, vowing to take care of her as she continues to grow old, but she commits herself to serve Naomi's God. And the text doesn't tell us exactly why uh, Ruth made this decision. Uh, perhaps Ruth understood the significance of marriage and of the fact that she was joining herself to the people of her husband. Uh, perhaps it was simply out of love for a Naomi. Or perhaps Elimelech and his sons were actually more diligent than we thought in discipling their Moabite wives to understand what it means to have married into God's chosen people. But in any case, we do see God's work in Ruth's life as she commits herself to leave her own people and her own land and instead to live as a widow as she cares for her aging mother-in-law. And as they make their way back to Judah, we see that they arrive at the beginning of barley harvest. And in chapter two, we see Ruth begin to glean in the fields of Boaz. We find out that Boaz is a relative of Elimelech and that he was a worthy man as the ESV translates it. And very quickly, Boaz takes notice of Ruth and tells her to only glean in his fields and not to glean anywhere else. He also tells her that he will make sure she is protected and provided for. And in verse 10, Ruth asks him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? 
Ruth recognized her status as a foreigner among the people of Israel. And she also recognizes that Boaz's favor is holy, unmerited. Boaz then tells her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May Yahweh repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz would have been well within his rights to have refused kindness to Ruth. Yet we see him function as a type of Christ, Christ who shows unmerited favor to undeserving sinners. And just as a, just as a brief aside, notice how Boaz doesn't say, well, you know, I'm showing you favor because uh, you're gorgeous and I'd like to have you all for myself, right? That's why I'm being so nice. No, in fact, uh, throughout the entirety of this story, there isn't anything mentioned about the physical looks of Ruth or Boaz. In our hypersexualized age where looks mean everything, it's hard for us to comprehend a love story that doesn't center on physical attractiveness. Yet we see in this most beautiful love story, physical attraction has nothing to do with it. Instead, we find that what attracts Boaz to Ruth is her character, her love and care for her mother-in-law, her commitment to the God of Israel, and her coming to take refuge in him. Similarly, what attracts Ruth to Boaz is his kindness, his ability to protect and provide for her. As we engage in our own love stories, either as married people or as those who hope to be married one day, we would do well to take notes from this most beautiful love story. So moving on, Boaz shows favor and kindness towards Ruth and he feeds her and commands his man to leave some bundles out for her to glean. And Ruth returns home with an inordinate amount of food and harvested wheat. And upon returning home, Naomi is overjoyed at Ruth's success. And she informs Ruth that Boaz is one of their redeemers. Now this concept of the kinsman redeemer and of Leverite marriage come to us from Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25. In Leviticus 25, we see that there is a mechanism within God's law for those who had fallen on hard times. This mechanism allowed them to sell the land while keeping the land within the same tribe, since the land was apportioned according to the tribes of Israel. So in other words, it was important for each of the tribes of Israel to maintain ownership of their land. So, and the law of land redemption allowed, uh, provided a means for them to do just that. And then in Deuteronomy 25, we are given the terms of leveret marriage. And while this concept of leveret marriage is entirely foreign and may even be repulsive uh, to some of us, we need to understand the purpose behind this law. First, in order for God's promises to be fulfilled, uh, specifically as it pertains to the land, uh, there needed to be a way for family lines to be perpetuated. So this law was to ensure that family lines would continue so that all of the tribes of Israel would continue. So within this law, the brother of the deceased husband would marry his brother's widow. And the firstborn son from their union would not be his heir, but would instead be the heir of his deceased brother. Secondly, this law was intended to, pr to protect and provide for the wife of the deceased. In, in those days, women outside the protection of marriage were often mistreated and taken advantage of. And we can even see hints of this in the book of Ruth. As a widow, living in the house of a widow, Ruth and Naomi were for all intents and purposes completely on their own. That is why Ruth was left to glean in the fields because there was no one else to provide for her and for her mother-in-law. 
And though the laws about gleaning provided a kind of welfare system whereby they could provide for themselves, it wasn't without its potential for abuse. That's why Boaz told her, keep close to my young women. And he charged the young man not to touch her. All in all, this law provided a way for the husband's brother to carry on the family name while providing for and protecting his widow so that she would not be susceptible to abuse. So we find out that Boaz is a redeemer and we read that Ruth kept close to his young women, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvests. Uh, wheat harvests. Then in chapter three, we read of Naomi's plan for Ruth to approach Boaz and make known her intentions or her desire to be redeemed by him. And in verses three and four, Naomi instructs Ruth, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. Ruth does what Naomi tells her to do. And in verses 12 and 13, Boaz tells her, and now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if you will not, or if he is not willing to redeem you, then as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. It's important to note here that there was no impropriety taking place in, in this encounter. Uh, there's nothing in scripture nor in ancient Near Eastern history that indicates that this uncovering of his feet was some sort of euphemism for sexual activity. Not only that, but Boaz's response that there is a redeemer nearer than he shows that his primary concern was walking in obedience to God's law. So there's nothing whatsoever that points to him breaking God's law by engaging in unlawful sexual activity with Ruth. And this is a very important thing to realize. Boaz makes clear that his desire to redeem Ruth would not come in the way of his obedience to God and his law. His primary concern is walking according to the law word of God. Again, in our modern age, when it comes to relationships and marriage, we've been fully conditioned to let love and passion take the driver's seat. Obedience is the last thing on our minds when hormones start raging and we get the opportunity to indulge our desires. And make no mistake, Although nothing is mentioned of Ruth's looks, we do know that Boaz found Ruth attractive. He found her character, her industrious spirit, her commitment to Naomi and her commitment to Yahweh attractive, which is why he calls her a worthy woman and tells her that he will redeem her. Yet despite all this, he makes clear that his utmost desire is to obey God and to ensure Ruth's redemption, even if it means that someone else would redeem her. He was so committed to God's law that he was willing to allow someone else to redeem Ruth despite any desire he had for her. So Boaz tells her that he will resolve the matter first thing in the morning and he sends her home with six measures of barley. And in chapter four, Boaz sets up a meeting between the redeemer, the elders of the city uh, concerning the redemption of Elimelech's land. Again, notice his commitment to doing everything above board, right? He could have schemed his way into getting what he wanted which again is what most people in our modern day would probably do. Most people are so concerned with getting their own way that they will morally and ethically compromise to get what they want. No, instead, Boaz approaches this redeemer in public in the presence of the leaders of the city so that everything would be done in the light and according to God's word. And so with that, let's go to um, the text, starting in verse three. Uh, There we read, then he said to the redeemer, Naomi 
who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So this Nero redeemer, whose name is not mentioned, he, he thinks he understands the situation. And initially he commits to redeeming the land. But let's keep reading. Uh, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Boaz explains that in addition to redeeming the land, this redeemer would also be accountable to the law of Leverite marriage. And upon hearing this, this near redeemer changes his mind. You see, by redeeming Ruth and by providing an heir to Elimelech, uh, this means that all of Elimelech's inheritance would go to that firstborn son rather than to the redeemer. So it seems that because it would not be financially beneficial to him, this near redeemer passes on this opportunity. So Boaz redeems Ruth. And in our primary text, we see the redemption of Ruth and the loving kindness of God on display as Ruth gives birth to a son. And in verse 16, we see Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. At the beginning of our story, back in chapter one, uh, verses 20 and 21, Naomi returns to Bethlehem and says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. At the beginning of this story, Naomi is in the utter depths of despair. And now at the end of our story, we see that Naomi is no longer empty. She is no longer under the frowning providence of God, but instead she has been blessed beyond anything she could have anticipated. And our story ends with a genealogy of David. We see that this story doesn't end with the immediate blessing upon Ruth and Naomi, but it ends by pointing to the blessing of all of Israel through the reign of her great king, David. And for the Christian, we know that this story does not reach its climax with the reign of David, but it ultimately anticipates and looks forward to the ruling reign of David's greater son, namely Jesus Christ. The story of Ruth finds its conclusion in the resurrection and ascension of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the ruler of the Kings of the earth. It is his rule and reign at the right hand of the father. As he places all of his enemies under his feet, it is his rule and reign that brings blessings to all people of all nations, especially to those who have put their faith and trust in him. We see that the redemption of Ruth was not only for Ruth and Naomi, it was not only for the people of Israel, but it was for all of God's people who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Now, what a remarkable story. I would encourage you, if you've never done so before, uh, after church today, go home and just read through the entirety of this story. And honestly, it'll only take you about 30 minutes to do so. I think in doing so, you'll get a better experience of the ebb and flow of the narrative, the tension and resolution in the story, You'll also be able to see why Samuel Johnson presented this story so that the unbelieving elite of his day could experience his beauty and excellency.
And you know, I almost just got up here and just read through the book as my sermon and just let that be it. Um, And I honestly think that would have been sufficient to have done so. Uh, Instead, I decided, you know, to provide some commentary and background uh, as we work through the story. So that way, when you go home and read it later, you can have some of that informing it uh, as you read it. Now, as we pointed out before, all of scripture is first and foremost about God. And its purpose is to reveal God to us. So as we read the story uh, and any other biblical narrative for that matter, it's important for us to ask the question, what does this tell me about God? And as I mentioned earlier, there are some things about God's character in this story that I think are especially relevant to us as a church in the current season we find ourselves in, namely as it relates to God's sovereignty and suffering. I've heard Pastor Tim say before on many occasions that everyone at all times and in all places is either heading into a time of crisis is currently in a time of crisis or has just left a time of crisis. So reflecting on God's sovereignty in suffering, I think is always relevant for God's people. But I think if we were to take an honest look in the mirror, I think we would all admit that we, the people of North Clay Baptist Church, we have had a couple of very difficult years. And it seems given recent events that we might be heading into another one. And given the fact that it seems like we have just been in a long season of ongoing difficulty, I thought it would be particularly relevant for us to consider these things this morning. I mean, just in thinking about our church uh, over the past five years, really since COVID, I I think it has been a time of tremendous blessing, but also a time of tremendous difficulty. Think of all the people we've lost. Think of all those who were once here who have left this fellowship or who have not been able to come back since the start of COVID. Think of all the brothers and sisters we've buried over the last three to five years. I can look around this room and I can see the hurt and turmoil that surrounds so many of us. For some of us, it's the loss of a loved one or an unfortunate diagnosis from the doctor. For others, it's a physical ailment that has proven overwhelming or even the pain of losing a child to miscarriage. I know for all of us, we have all experienced the pain and devastation of losing a friend and a brother because he chose his sin over obedience to God. And I know for so many of us, we've just been overcome by the stress and difficulty of just trying to make a living in a fallen world. We see in our story that Ruth and Naomi fell on some very difficult times. Naomi lost her husband and her two sons and the loss of a loved one is significant enough But we also need to remember that she also lost the only ones who could protect her and provide for her well-being. So not only was this a devastating emotional loss, but this loss immediately placed her in a terrible economic position. And did Naomi simply ignore her circumstances or put up a front? When she returned to Judah, did she just say, oh, you know, I'm I'm good, I'm, I'm just tired. Right? That's, I know that's my default response. Whenever I'm going through a hard time, you can ask Katie, she'll tell you. But is that how Naomi played it? No, what did she say? She said, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought this calamity upon me. We know from stories like this and like that of Job that it is all God that it is God who ultimately brings about all things, even the suffering we face. Now, God does use means to bring about his good purpose. And sometimes that means is our own sinfulness 
and stupidity. And if that's you, right, if you're in a difficult time because of your own sin and stupidity, your responsibility is to recognize that God has brought this about so you would repent of that sin and stupidity. But sometimes there's no obvious reason why a particular circumstance has come about. There may not be any rhyme or reason as to why a particular difficulty befalls us. But regardless, it is always true that God has brought this about for our good and for his glory. But notice again, Naomi doesn't say, oh, the devil's out to get me, right? She doesn't say, well, you know, it's just bad luck. No, she openly recognizes that God has brought this about. And despite this recognition, she does not express any anger towards God. She is open and honest about her emotional disposition, but she does not sin by indicting God for his frowning providence. And this is a really good lesson for us. Often when we face difficulty, our initial response is to question God's character. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's because we think that whatever it is, it shouldn't be happening to me. Most of the time, we are not like the psalmist who experienced a righteous anger towards injustice and wickedness. No, more often than not, we're just upset because we think we deserve better or we think that God is being unfair. And let's keep in mind that if what we want is fair, then we all go to hell. We all go straight to hell, no pass and go, no collecting $200. That would be fairness from God. So before we go on to express anger towards God, we need to remember that even the very breath in our lungs is a kindness and a grace that we do not deserve. Naomi does not call God unfair. She does not impugn his character. Instead, she simply recognizes his sovereign providence in all things. And let's not forget about Ruth, right? Ruth also lost her husband. She lost her brother-in-law and her father-in-law. Eventually, she lost her sister and was without the comforts of home and family. Yet what does she do? She commits herself to Naomi and says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She does not forsake Naomi or Naomi's God, but she realizes that her only true hope is in the God of Israel. While God has been good to us and he has blessed us beyond all measure and he has, he, he truly and honestly has. Uh, you can look around and see his blessing in all of the new faces here at this church, all of the new people that he's brought into our fellowship. You can look around and see his goodness and all of the children running around our church, the children that God has blessed this congregation with. And if we're being honest, you probably don't even have to look around. These kids typically have a way of making themselves known. While God has been good to us, let's not deny the fact that as a church, we have, in God's providence, walked through some very trying circumstances. Let's honestly admit that the past year or two, in particular, has been very difficult and even painful. And the question for us is not how do we avoid such calamity, but how will we respond when calamity strikes? Will we respond like Naomi and recognize God's sovereign providence in all things? Will we respond like Ruth and commit ourselves to God, to his word and to his people, right? And this is not a one and done type of deal, right? But this is an ongoing decision that we have to consciously make. This year, this month, This week, this very moment, will I submit to God's providence and trust that he is working all things for my good and for his glory? Will I rejoice in my suffering 
knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. We need to see that we can endure suffering because God is sovereign. And in his sovereignty, he has ordained every circumstance for our good and for his glory. We also need to see that God has not left us to merely endure hardship on our own, but he always gives his people the hope of redemption. Let's look back at Naomi, right? When Naomi lost her husband and shortly thereafter, her two sons as well, what did she do? Did she wallow in her misery? Did she just give up and resort to living in sin? No, she returned to God's covenant people. You have to remember that Naomi knew the law. She knew that God in his kindness had given his people a means of redemption in his law. So she recognized that the only hope for her was to return to God's people and to trust in his provision. Now she didn't know, right? She did not know if she would be redeemed. I mean, the first redeemer wouldn't redeem them. And it's entirely possible that Boaz could have refused to redeem them as well. And that's the way it is for us most of the time. We do not know what will be around the next corner. I'm sure if you were to ask us back in 2018 or 2019, I don't think any of us would have predicted the whirlwind that COVID brought about. I'm sure if you asked any one of us, none of us would have expected the hardships of the last year or two. And at this time last year, I don't think any of us would have anticipated our senior pastor having to face the health issues he has. We do not know what will be around the next corner. And we do not know if there will be any reprieve in our near future. And I don't know about y'all, but it seems like just when it can't get any harder, it does, right? It seems like just when it can't get any worse, it somehow finds a way to get worse. From our economic conditions, to our relationships, to struggles at work, to health issues, it seems like life always finds a way of becoming more and more difficult. Naomi did not know what her future would bring. She did not know if she would no longer be empty one day. She did not know if she would be redeemed, but she had hope because she did know that God in his sovereign providence had given her a means of redemption. And like Naomi, God has not left us without hope. In fact, for us as new covenant believers, we have even more cause to have hope in our suffering. Keep in mind that at the very most, all Naomi had was hope and a possibility offered to her by God's law. But for those of us in Christ, we don't simply have an obscure law that offers the opportunity of redemption. We don't merely have hope in a possibility. No, our hope has already been realized in our salvation and adoption as sons. We do not have hope in a redemption that may or may not take place. No, we have already been redeemed in Christ. The gospel reminds us that our hope is not a blind hope, but it is a hope that has already come to pass. When it came to our sin, there was no hope for us. There was no way for us to escape our condition. Yet God in his kindness saw fit to send his son to secure our redemption. When we were dead in trespasses and sins with no hope of new life, God through his Holy Spirit removed our hearts of stone and gave us hearts of flesh. So if you're a believer here this morning, know that your hope of redemption has already been realized in your salvation and regeneration. 
But even more so, we know that there will be a progressive unfolding of our redemption as we are sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ. Whatever trial we face, we know that it is not meaningless, but that it will ultimately make us look more like Christ. So even if we do not receive the happy ending we would have hoped for, we know that our hope has not been put to shame. And this trial is being redeemed as we are transformed more and more into the image of our Savior. And finally, our hope is in the fact that our redemption will be made complete when we are united together with Christ. Whatever the outcome in this life, however things may turn out in this life, we know that it does not have the final say. This trial does not have the final say and death does not even have the final say. But we know that Christ has secured our victory and he will bring to completion the good work that he began. Our hope The hope of the believer is a living hope that is already realized in our justification. It is progressively realized more and more in our sanctification and it will ultimately be fully realized in our glorification. So take heart, good Christian, knowing that he has already overcome the world, including this difficulty we face. Be encouraged because God has given us his spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance to sanctify us and to comfort us in our trials and persevere in hope because our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have redeemed us, your people. We thank you that you have not left us to endure the hardship of life on our own, but you have given us all we need and more. As we look back on our lives up to this point, as we look on the last few years, we can all look back and say that we have walked through many dangers, toils, and snares. But Lord, we thank you that your grace has brought us safe thus far. And we thank you that your grace will lead us home. I pray that we would be comforted by that truth. I pray that the struggles of this life will never cause us to lose sight of the redemption that we have in you. We ask and pray all of these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.